I'm going to invite you to Romans chapter 8 is where we are today. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be studying together. And as we get ready to jump into this text, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And then we're going to dive into what God uh, has for us starting in verse 12. Let's, let's pray together. God, we thank you for a morning to gather, to connect to you. God, to be humbled before your presence and want to know you more. Asking your word to speak to our hearts, to transform our lives that we may live for your glory. God, we just pray that you bless our time, that we would be an encouragement to each other as we seek your face. And we just pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 8 is a beautiful passage of scripture. I think I have been building this chapter up for weeks and the importance of where it fits in the book of Romans as Paul has laid out for us the struggle of our human nature, how it's alienated us against God because of our sin. God is holy. We can't have relationship with him without forgiveness and reconciliation. We come to that great challenge at the end of chapter 7 where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of sin and death. It's this place of, of utter despair. And, and reality is uh, pride has the ability to keep us from God's presence. Our, our personal pride, we struggle uh, with our relationship with God because of pride, and pride distances us uh, from God's presence. But it's in humility that we hear. It's when we're at our, our lowest that God tends to be at his loudest. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis described it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In fact, when you study scripture, you often find that uh, many people that followed after the Lord, the, the, the moments where they really heard from God was at moments of some, some of the greatest struggle that they endured. Some of the sweetest souls you, you meet in life that have this, seem to have this genuine joy in their relationship with God on the back end of that had some great adversity, which brought them to that place to really come to know God and, and walk with him. One character that really stands out for me is uh, Peter. The Apostle Peter, when he walked with Jesus, some of the greatest lessons that Peter learned happened at the lowest moments of his life, or especially in his journey with the Lord. You know, I think Peter was this successful fisherman. It was what he did by trade. And there were nights you find in Scripture a couple of times where Peter would fish all night and, and found nothing. And in Luke chapter 5, one of those nights and being unsuccessful, Jesus tells him after all that labor, just cast your net on the other side. And he ends up pulling in and just one cast enough to break the nets and the amount of fish that he received. He, in that moment of, of that humility, he heard from the Lord um, when, when the crowds that followed Jesus abandoned him and John John chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, everyone left, and, and Peter, feeling that moment of really abandonment by the people, he looks around, and, and, he, and he contemplates, should he walk away from the Lord? And, and then he gives this statement, Lord, you have the words of eternal life, where are we to go? But it was, it was this moment of deep consideration in his soul when he sees all others walking away from God that he, he finds this opportunity to further connect with Christ, or when he stepped out of the boat. Remember, he sees Jesus walking on water, and he steps out of the boat, and the moment he takes his eyes off the Lord, he starts to sink. But it's Jesus who's rescuing, rescues him and as, he, as he goes to the, under the water, and it's a reminder again of here he is, and, and uh, taking his eyes off God in his pride, and, and in his humility, the Lord restores him. Or, or the, the, the greatest moment, I think, of, of Peter's life where he really turned his back on, on the Lord is when Jesus was crucified. 
And, he, and he, he makes eye contact with the Lord in that moment as, as he denies Christ when he's about to be crucified and he runs away weeping. And what does the Bible tell, tell us in, at the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter one, uh, 21? That Jesus, after his resurrection, he shows up on the shore where Peter's fishing. And he meets Peter there in his need. And in his humility, he hears from the Lord. And we ourselves were a lot like that. When you get to Romans chapter 7, you really see Paul struggling with, with who he is in his flesh and in his nature and the things that he desires to do, the good he desires to do, he doesn't, he doesn't do, but instead he does bad things. And he refers to himself as this wretched man and he wants to be rescued and he finds this place of desperation. When you get to chapter 8, then he starts to introduce for us, the apostle Paul introduced to us uh, the, the power of God's spirit. And how God's Spirit can help us move through the struggles of life. In fact, we, we titled today, Three Truths to Combat Life's Trials. And he starts off in verse 12, he says it like this. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So in these verses, he sets the framework for how the, the Spirit of God works in our life. And I, and I want us to know, when I talk about the Spirit of God, some people get weird about the Spirit. Like it's this mystical, I don't know, thing that you really can't describe. And, it, and it, you just go by this feeling of what God wants. And, I, and I, I think the Spirit of God can certainly convict us in certain areas of life. But let me just tell you, when, when you want to make sure if the Spirit of God is really leading you, if you want to know what the Spirit of God is like as you, as you want to take steps forward, the best thing to do is read the Word of God. God has communicated who He is in His nature, and that will be how His Spirit leads and so if you start to, you know, your, your faith, I think it's good to be built on, on a conviction in the Lord, um, but, but not just leave that with a, a feeling, but to find the truth of God as, as you follow the conviction of the Spirit of God so that you can make sure that your heart is aligned with what God's Word says, because the Spirit of God won't lead you contrary to that. And, and he's, as he's laying this out for us, he, he's laying for us this foundation for really what the Christian life is all about. Uh, Paul is saying in this passage, look, if I live according to the flesh, I will die. And, and, and we say this as a church, I've reminded us of this the last few weeks, that the point of the Christian life is not about a list of rules. It's not about making bad men good, good men better. It's not even about you. It's rather about dying to you and living for him. It's about surrendering your heart to, to his purposes in, in your life that the Spirit of God uh, may, may lead you. And it's a beautiful thing for us because it gives us an all an opportunity to find freedom. It's why I can say to you this morning, look, I don't care about your, your, your sexual orientation. I, I don't care uh, uh, about your economic position in life or your titles or your successes or your failures. What you need to know more than anything is Jesus loves you, Jesus, Jesus lived for you, and Jesus died for you that you can find life in him. That's where all of us begin this journey with the Lord. We, we come to him empty and we embrace in him what he gives to us. Jesus gave his life for us. But here, here's the pressing question. Do you want to give your life for him? God's primary interest in your heart is not modifying your behavior. God's primary interest in your life is to receive your heart. 
He wants you because he knows if he gets your heart, he will change your life. And that's what Paul's saying here. This is, this is not by me living in the flesh. I am not going to be successful by my flesh. It's not about I failed, so therefore I'm going to try harder. It's about I need Jesus altogether. And the only way to discover this is to lay my life fully down for him. In fact, in verse 14, this, this word led by the spirit, it literally carries the idea of reorienting all of your life to this. My life is defined this way. And so we're, we're going to see this morning three truths to combat life's trials through these, this passage of Scripture that helps us understand how we live in light of this. Do you want to give your life for him? Well, there is a battle, Paul outlined for us in Romans 7. So how do we do this successfully in, in a world that would war against what God desires for your life? Point number one in your notes is this, is to remember, I belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. This is your identity in him. This is new life, reorientation in Christ. I belong to the Lord. Verse 15, it's important. He starts off this way because there is something contrary to that that we might listen to rather than our identity in Christ. He starts off this way. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. It's paramount in the life of a Christian that you, you truly understand the identity for which you receive in Jesus because this becomes the platform for everything that you do in following after him. If you choose to walk in fear rather than faith, I can say it like this. Anyone that takes a step in fear, generally speaking, if your next step is a step out of fear, you're going to make a, a foolish mistake. God does not call us to a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. It is not a step of fear. It is a step of faith. And the reason we can make that step is because of who we are in him, which is why in, in the, the, the following part of this verse, then Paul gives us two words to help us begin to understand the identity for which we have in Christ, that so we can move forward with confidence. And confidence literally means with faith, with faith. And so he says this, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. More than anything as people, I think what our hearts desire is, 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 is to belong. We want to belong. We want to be secure, accepted, have purpose. That's what these words mean. Abba and adopted. You belong. If you are in Christ... You belong. God has adopted you into his family. Now, th this is an important word because I know sometimes people mistakenly assume that everyone is a child of God. Everyone automatically belongs to God. But, but let, me, let me just ask this. Why would he have to use the word adopted if everyone belongs? If you're just born and you just automatically belong, there is no need for any, any adoption. The word adoption is identifying for us that there was a place in your life which you were not accepted by Christ. Or maybe that's you this morning and you don't even know if you belong to Christ. But the heart's desire of, of, of Jesus is that he pursued you with everything that he had, that you may find new life in him and belong to him. And therefore you have the word adopted. Once in the family, you are there. 
You belong, the heart of God is an adoptive heart. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, um, in Israel's history, it wasn't until about uh, the the time of the kings that you start to see the prophets emerge, which are the last really 17 books of of the Old Testament. The prophets start appearing. And it's because Israel kept disobeying and disobeying. And do you know one of the primary judgments the prophets stated over and over? It was, it was lived out. Their, their relationship with God was made known, um, or their lack of relationship with God was made known by the injustice that they demonstrated against the widow and the orphan. God's heart is that people belong. God's heart is an adoptive heart. That we would look at what we have in life and, and share in that, that, that people could be embraced by the love of God as, as his people live out the truth of God, being accepted by him so that others could, could see emulating us the love of Jesus as we go into this world. God's heart is an adoptive heart, which is why Jesus said, well, John says in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. But to those who receive Abba, Father, who receive what Christ has done for us, it's this invitation into God's family where we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I don't know, sometimes in Christian lingo, we get, we get used to that word. You know, our Father in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right? That's the, the Lord's Prayer. At least we call it the Lord's Prayer. But, but that phrase was scandalous for Christians to even state, to, to, to think that God could be referred into such intimate terms. Uh, for most people, their, their theology of God is, is distant. It's deistic, as if God sort of created the world, he wound it up and he stepped back and he was indifferent to the things that took place. But not our God. He is personal, he pursues, he loves us where we are. He brings us into the fold and he gives us opportunity for freedom and reconciliation and life in him. I belong. And, and, and Paul uses this opening phrase for us to understand the identity for which we receive in the Lord to the point that we can, we can cry not just father, but this word really translates as daddy. And then he goes on, verse 16, the spirit himself there's witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus' authority in inviting us in means we get to rule and reign with him. Now, I want to be careful in saying because we're heirs with Christ doesn't mean you're equal to Christ. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that Jesus is heir of all things. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and, and really on, 9 and 10 especially, but it tells us that all people, tribes, tongues, languages, praise and worship the, the lamb on the throne forever and ever. There, there is an authority which he carries that we will never be equivalent to because he is God. But because of his success and his victory over sin, Satan, and death, because we've been adopted into that family, we get the opportunity to rule and reign with him. He is our king. We as his servants. And it's because we, we belong. Verse 17, then he goes on further and says, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I love this because... Paul's, Paul's honest. He's honest with, with the idea of just because you know Jesus, 
doesn't mean this earthly life will be easy. In fact, there there is a struggle that comes with following Jesus. And, And one of the greatest blessings you have to show the genuineness of your relationship with God is your willingness to struggle for it. Your willingness to struggle in it. I put Jesus above all others to the point that I will sacrifice for the sake of that relationship. I will let go of the things, the pleasures of this world for the hope that I have in Christ. There is a crown to come, but we often say, but before the crown, there is a cross to bear. I mean, Jesus told his followers that, take up your cross and follow me. One of the greatest ways to look at your life and say, is my, my relationship with Jesus genuine? Is it real? It's to look back at your life and say, has there been any point in my relationship with God where I sacrificed in order to pursue him? Has it cost me? Because it cost him everything. Is your love genuine for Christ? Is there any way in your life you can look at where there was some inconvenience for which you walk with Jesus? And one of the greatest ways that you can, you can do that with, with utter joy is to understand the true identity that you have in him. You belong. You are adopted. He is your father. Point number two, then is this. He also walks with me. He understands my needs. We're, we're going to look at a, a, a bigger chunk in this section, verse 18 to, to 27. But, but I want you to see as we go through this, he talks about groanings, the, uh, the groanings of creation, the groanings in ourself, and the, and the groaning in, in the spirit. But, but what's important here is he, he walks with me and he understands my needs. Uh, God, God does not leave us empty. In, in fact, I, I would say this. Um, sometimes we ask the question, why do bad things happen? If God is good, why do bad things happen? And, and no one really knows the mind of the Lord. I don't think there's one set answer for all the bad things that, that happen in life. But, but I, I can say this about some of the struggles we experience. Most of us would not seek God if it weren't for the trouble that we have encountered. We typically don't listen to God in our pleasure. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Our ears become more attentive to him when things get hard. We hear when we're humbled. He's loudest at our lowest. And in Romans chapter 8, the following verses, I think he, he, he considers this for us. He says, for I consider that all the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there is a greater hope. Don't lose, don't lose sight of the hope in the midst of the struggle. There's, there's more to come for us, for the creation waits with, with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God, for the creation was subject, subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. Let me, let me just say this. Verse 20, he's saying, when Adam and Eve sinned, God allowed the natural consequences of sin to be made known. God permitted that to take place in hope that the struggle within this world would remind us of the joy of what we could have in him. Uh, theologians have used this for years to, to help us understand the, the idea of a God and, and, and where morality comes from and why we long for that and how that points to the existence of a God and, and why we should believe in one. And, and, and it carries this idea. I think I've used this illustration with us a few weeks ago. C.S. Lewis has, has remarked on it before. He's, is one of the reasons he said he came to, to be a person of faith in Christ. He said, you know, he used the illustration of a fish. If you remember, a fish is never going to describe itself as, as wet 
because it's made for that environment. Just like you will, you will never describe yourself. If someone says describe you, you will never describe yourself as dry, right? It's just, it's the natural state of which you were intended to be, right? Fish are made to be wet, you're made to be dry. But there's something within our being that recognizes that, that there is a struggle in life and it just doesn't set right with us. And C.S. Lewis reaches this conclusion. He says, perhaps you have such a struggle for this world because your life was made for another world. Your soul knows that things are broken. Creation groans in recognition that things are broken. And the hope ultimately for us is, is looking forward to what we have in Christ. And, and Paul does this one thing in verse 22 for our reasoning to, to understand it. He says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I would like to tell Paul if he existed today that he would get cancel cultured with that verse, right? Like, what is, where does a man get off mansplaining childbirth? How does he even know what, that, what that's like, right? Like, how, how do you even connect with that? And I, if I had time today, ladies, I could let you just share with us what that's like through the first, second, third trimester to the point of childbirth, right? We, as as a, a husband who has seen his wife go through that, right? I, I, I have uh, visually seen it, though I, I cannot fully relate to this. But, but here's, here's a question I would just pose with this. So Paul's saying that childbirth is painful. If childbirth is so painful, why do we have so many people on this planet? Right? Like, why are there so many people walking around if childbirth is so painful? And the answer is because of the result. New life is beautiful and wonderful and precious. And the same is true for us this morning in following after Jesus. Why are we fighting this battle? Why are we even talking about struggling in this way? Because what Jesus came to offer us is new life in him. And we have the privilege of sharing that with the world that others may discover this new life in Christ. And, and he tells us in this passage that you know, creation is, is groaning, and then he, and he goes on, and he, and he shares in verse 23 that, this, uh, that we are groaning. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who, are the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, have, we, we were saved. Uh, now, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he, is, he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, what is he talking about here? Let, let, me, let me just say this. When you read in the New Testament, this word adoption is used in multiple passages. Um, sometimes it's used as if, past tense, you're adopted. Other times, it's also used in future tense, waiting for the day of your adoption. Here in this passage, though you're adopted by God, if you're in Christ, um, it's also anticipating the day that your adoption will be fully made known when you're face-to-face -face with the Lord in relationship. Now, why is he saying this? He's acknowledging, like, in creation right now, we're still groaning because we're, we're anticipating that day when everything is reconciled fully and we're there with God and we're in his presence because we're created for that. We're made to know God and enjoy God and live before him for all of eternity. That's, that's the reason he made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's the reason he created you. You were made for relationship, starting with God. But, but Paul's also acknowledging something here about that journey that we are the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, one of the interesting things in the, in the New Testament that, that one of the reasons Israel rejected God is they had this anticipation of what the Messiah would bring. 
They had this idea of geopolitical rulership. That when the Messiah would come, he would come for his people, and he would dominate the world, and he would rule over the world, and, and all people would be blessed through that because he is sovereign, he is good. He would be king. But when Jesus died, they didn't completely understand how he was bringing his kingdom. There, there's a, a term in, in, in Christian theology they refer to as the already not yet. Which means when Jesus came, he brought his kingdom. Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand. But he also taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, your kingdom come, your will be done. Meaning, even though he brought his kingdom, the fullness of his kingdom wasn't made known yet. And so the way that we see, as Paul's explaining here, how, how did Jesus bring his kingdom? Well, he tells us uh, by the first fruits of the Spirit. The way that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom was by bringing his spirit to indwell his people to live for his kingdom purpose in this world. And here's the reason he did it. If Jesus came and he brought his kingdom to its fullest at, at his first coming, Jesus would have wiped us off the earth. Because what we needed was forgiveness and reconciliation. We didn't want to be under the wrath of this king. We needed to be under his grace. So that when he returns, we're ready. The first fruits of his spirit comes to dwell within his people that we could live for his glory in representing his kingdom. And in that, we eagerly wait for the fullness of that adoption. To see God face to face. And to know him. And in that journey, our, our spirit, it, it can groan as we go through this. He, but he walks with us and, and he understands us. This is why it, it goes on in verse 26 and 27. Then he, he says this, likewise. And when I read this passage, let me, let me tell you before I read this. Out of all the passages in scripture, I think it's these few verses that have brought me more comfort than any other. He walks with us. He cares for us. It's one of the beautiful things about the Lord. And if you ask, ask the question, why, does bad, why do bad things happen? One, one we, we know that God uses the difficult things really to drive us to him. Uh, but but we, we can't argue that God doesn't care. Because what we see in Jesus is a, a God that pursues us. He, he gives his life for us, right? He, he gave everything that we know. He is a God that cares. He became intimate with our suffering to the point that even the spirit intercedes with us. Look at this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit groans. You ever get to that place in life where you're, you're tired? <laughs> and, and, and you're not just physically tired. Your soul is tired. Right? Maybe, maybe you lost a job. Maybe you lost... A friendship, maybe you lost a marriage, maybe you lost a child. And your soul groans. And there aren't even words. And what this passage is saying is, in that moment before the Lord, while you struggle to even express before God, the Spirit knows. 
It knows and he intercedes for you. I mean, how how many times in your life can you just think of, or when was the last time in your life I could say that you just, you, you can remember just sitting before the presence of God and letting the spirit of God intercede for you because you were just empty. All you could say before the Lord is, Lord, I just, I'm just, I feel broken. I don't even know what the next step is. God, all I know is my soul hurts. And he's, he's saying in this moment, in the midst of the struggle, there is a God who cares, who, who, who walks with you, that does not abandon you because you, you belong. You belong. In fact, I would say one, one of the encouraging things in this passage is, is that the gift to you is different than anyone else going through struggles in life. Like this, the Spirit of God is with you, not, not, not just to help you in this struggle, but to also help you overcome that struggle, right? To step forward in this. To find God's strength to, to move through. Point number three then is to say, and nothing will be wasted. Nothing will be wasted. Verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want to be careful in saying nothing will be wasted uh, and just adding that caveat for those that love God. So let me ask you the question. Do you love God? Do you know him? Because he sees the struggle of this world and the things that you're going through. And he has the ability to redeem it all. When you lay down your life for Jesus, and there is a cost, none of that cost will be wasted. How do I know God has the ability to do that? Well, one, we always point to the cross of Christ. If God could take the darkest day in human history and and make the cross the anthem of Christianity, he can do the same thing for your life too. God can redeem the struggles. And that's what this passage is saying. It's saying, look, um, it's his sovereignty. God can work all things together for good because uh, of his sovereign hand. It's, it's this, this thought of comfort for his people that he is in control of it all. He is good. He is for you. He is with you. He is sovereign. And he will determine that all of it works together for good to those that love God who are called according to his purpose. And he's already demonstrated his capability because of his victory over the cross. And so this is a word of encouragement for his people. In the struggle of life, keep leaning in. Keep leaning in. Trusting in the power of his spirit to to work in your life as you don't try to perform harder. Don't don't do good and do more. Give your life fully over to him. Jesus, lead me. How, how do we know that he is the sovereign, the sovereign hand he carries for us? Well, it goes on a little further and, and, and explains to us these, these words in Christianity that uh, they, they, there's a lot of debate over these words. Can I just tell you as I get ready to re- read these words, uh, a couple of things. Your, your soteriology, which is your salvation, it's an important theology to learn about, right? It is important in this room this morning if you know whether or not you're in Jesus, 
It is important in this room if you've been, to, to know if you've been born again, you've been saved, if you've given your heart to Christ because of what he's done for you. The particulars of that, the particulars of that we should also refine in, in our Christian walk in order to grow in the understanding of that, but not to the degree that we fight and become disunified. It is important to use each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to sharpen what we believe in Jesus and encourage one another along. And these, this, this text is one of those passages that becomes a place of refinement. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see this, these words, foreknowledge and predestination and called and justified and, and, and glorified. And the question is, what, what do they mean? Well, let me just say this. When it comes to the idea of foreknowledge, here's the comfort for you. That God's hand is so sovereign for, for us that he doesn't look at the need that we have in life. God didn't look at our, our lost state and say, oh man, what am I going to do? I'm in a panic, right? He's not stressing out about that. God, God knew from the beginning what it would take for us to find salvation in him, rescue in him. And God had already determined what that would be, that his people would be redeemed in him. God knew the plan from beginning to end. This is not a surprise to God. Your situation is not a surprise to God. The state of humanity is not a surprise to God. It doesn't catch him off guard, but his heart has always been about giving his life that you may find freedom in him. He foreknew and he predestined. This idea of predestination is, is one for us that gives us hope, meaning your destiny is secure. This is a word of eternal security. That in Jesus, you're adopted, you're belong, your eternity is secure in him. That destiny has already been determined by Christ. That you were called. And this is a special calling, meaning um, it's not about your ability to go before God, but rather God's calling you before him. And, and, and to illustrate this, we could say in, in the days of kings, you couldn't just randomly go before a king because you wanted to. If, if you tried that, you would get killed. The book of Esther centers on that thought. You have to be invited. God's heart is to invite you in. Those whom he called. If you try to go to the White House today, you want to jump a fence and cross the lawn, you're not going to make it, right? You've got to be summoned. You've got to be called. And that's the beauty of God. His willingness to even give us a place to be invited in. You were called you were justified, meaning you were made righteous before him. Your sin forgiven, wiped clean, justified. And not only justified, when, when the Lord sees you, he sees the goodness of Jesus. You're already past tense glorified. That's how much the sovereign hand of God's promises rest on you. So what does this give me the opportunity to do? And the, the thoughts of these words are, are what carry me through through the battle of life. As Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who will set me free? And the answer is, not you. Not your strength, not your power. But his spirit. His spirit. God is the one who perfects you in him, your identity in him, the promises that he gives, and he walks with you through it.
it's messy. But through it, he receives the glory. And he will work all things together with good. So I'm going to close with this. This this last illustration, this is a a messy illustration to help us recognize that in in the battles that we face in life, um, we have... uh, messes too, and we can be faithful to the Lord in it despite the, the struggle. Martin Niemöller was a minister in Nazi Germany. He was a part of the Confessing Church in Germany, which is, if you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Karl Barth, this was the church that rose up against Hitler when Hitler tried to put his foot in the church and dictate what happened in worship services. He wanted to have control of the church. Uh, Martin Niemöller, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, they all stood up against it and said, no, we're not allowing you to have, have that. In fact, uh, Martin Niemöller was one of the leaders uh, of, of the Confessing Church, and he rallied 6,000 pastors together to put their foot down against Adolf Hitler and demand that he get his hand out of the church. Adolf Hitler couldn't stand it. He, he arrested Martin and, and threw him in a concentration camp in 1938, and he stayed in that concentration camp till he was liberated in 1945. He took a bold stand, and it cost him. But you, you know what's interesting about Martin? One of the things that makes him complicated, maybe one of the wild parts of his story, Martin also supported the Nazi party. <laughs> in fact, a lot of people in Germany did. 1924, he voted for the Nazi party. 1933, he again voted for the Nazi party. He liked the strong and powerful leadership that would unite Germany. And at the end of the war, he, he later repented of his decisions. And, and he, he said this, uh, he, he, I later realized that my Christian faith had been taken captive by ardent nationalism. He confused his country's kingdom for God's. And it led him down a path that he, he regretted. He stood up against Hitler when Hitler wanted to put his foot in the church. But truthfully, that's the only thing he stood up against Hitler for. He didn't do enough, and he regretted it. He didn't use his voice, and he, he regretted it. You know, when I hear that story supporting Nazi Germany, really only taking a stand when Hitler wanted to put his hand in in the church, um, I realize I could cast stones on him. um, But at the same time, there's a part of me that recognizes I can do the same thing. What I mean is, in in our Christian journey, we have the tendency sometimes to give a little bit to Jesus until it gets uncomfortable. And then we take a step back and we look at the thing that we did for Jesus and we talk about how great that was. And Martin could have done that. I mean, I could have just shared with you the, the, the story where, where Mar- Martin, uh, he, he led the confessional church and rallied all these pastors. Yeah, they stood up against Hitler and that's all I could have told you, right? And we would have thought, that's a great guy. But to find out when he was oppressing people in his country that he stood silent. How great is that really? You think about your own life when following Jesus may have been a little inconvenient for you. And what did you do? Martin later went on and he said this. He said, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. 
Then they came for the trade unionists, and I, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then, then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. He said, Christianity is it's not an ethic, nor is it a system of dogmatics, but it's a living thing. One cannot deal with God in solitude or in remoteness only, but in the struggles of life. This Christian journey is not about waiting until things get perfect to follow God. It's not about let me get my life in order first and then then I'll, I'll turn to Jesus. It's about recognizing that that's exactly where God wants to meet you, is in that mess. Because that's where he transforms us. That's what we need in this Christian life is, is not people that have it all perfect showing us how to follow Jesus, but people in the midst of adversity showing us that God is faithful and that he is present and, and that his spirit groans with us through that struggle. But by the power of the spirit, we can live victoriously. Why? Because there is a greater hope. Because in Christ, I, I belong. He's with me. He comforts me. And I know because of his sovereign hand, nothing, nothing is wasted. Rather than follow in faith, where do you give in to fear? Where are you letting other people dictate what your relationship with God should look like? Versus where are you truly laying it all down for the Lord to make a difference in this world? and to walk with him. That only happens, it only happens by being secure in your identity in Christ, knowing who you are and your belonging, trusting that he is sovereign, that nothing in, in him is wasted, and enjoying that journey as he walks with you in the midst of that struggle. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.